Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Great. Thank you, Pastor John, and thank you for the worship team. Uh, a great worship uh, as we encounter God. I sense His presence and His Spirit with us today. And thank you for the tech team for help supporting in the back there as well. Uh, yeah, so happy Father's Day. Uh, it's a great honor to be able to share with you on this special occasion. Um, as, uh, we remember last week, Pastor John is preaching from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23. And we're going to continue on with the verses 8 to 29. And the title of today is called Outpouring a Mighty Axe. Uh, it's about David, mighty man, uh, aptly topic for Father's Day. So before we get, uh, oh, in, in this chapter, we are continuing with the life of King David as he's reaching the end of his reign, actually the end of his life. And uh, we are looking back at some of his events, uh, especially the people who helped him, his mighty men who helped him throughout the time when he was first a fugitive and then later when he was the king. So we're going to talk about a little bit of the mighty man, a bit of his dream team. But before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this uh, beautiful and glorious day um, that we are able to start to come back and have people at, at the church here. We pray for your spirit to lead us uh, as we uh, move away from the COVID restriction, as we move into this new season. Give us a, a fresh anointing, a refreshed spirit, a spirit that is steadfast in you. Show us where you want to guide us and show us where you want to lead us because we know that you are mine and we are yours. We sang this morning, Lord. Father, may your word come through today, Lord, and use me to speak your word and your truth as we share from the book of Samuel. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I, I love reading about struggles and, and battles and history, but one of the greatest Canadian battle did not require swords or weapons or cannons. It happened in 1972. It was the 1972 Summit Hockey Series. It was Team Canada versus USSR. This is the first time a, a set of exhibition games play between the top players of Canada versus what was then the USSR, the Soviet Union. So there was about 35 top players from the NHL that were selected to play against the Soviets. Players and stars like Phil Esposito, Frank Mahovlich, um, Ivan Conway, Brad Parks, and the likes. And they formed Team Canada. And the Canadians were confident we'll beat the Russian because that's our national sport, right? Well, Team Canada got a rude awakening. The Russian played like a powerhouse team. They, wiped, or they beat the Canadians on the first game and a number of games thereafter. And what started out as the friendly eight games exhibition match turned into war on ice. There was fights, bench clearing, uh, there was lots of penalty, heavy body checks, 
And you remember, this is 1972. It was still in the middle of the Cold War. And the games kind of represented a class of culture between beliefs, different system, political system, between democracy versus communism. So there was a lot at stake. And the Soviet leader, Brezhnev, was also in the audience. So Canada felt behind in the series, and they need to win all the last three games in Moscow. So in nail-biting fashion, Canada managed to win game six and game seven by just one goal each. And in game eight, Canada fell behind the final game. Going into the last period, they were behind by two goals. But they managed to tie up the game. In the last minute of play, a young Paul Henderson, he jumped up from the Canadian bench, ran into the ice, picked up a rebound from Esposito, and scored a winning goal. So this picture, the iconic picture of Paul Henderson celebrating the, his, his goal with about 34 minutes left in the game, and the announcer say, Henderson scored for Canada, this iconic picture is in most history books in, for Canadians. So the, the exploit of Team Canada in that summit series is, we, is told and retold over and over again, and next year we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary. Our country at that moment was so united. Between the East and the West, we came together. The French Canadian and the English Canadian, we came together. It was a sweet victory, and we still finally remember that decades later. So in 2 Samuel 23, we are also looking at the sweet victory of King David. And the man does mention in 2 Samuel 23, I remember for generations, and 3,000 years later, sermons are still being preached about these men. But just a very quick background, kind of like the Cold War, the, the world during David's time was also very complex. The region of Canaan, that area, is at the crossroad of many major empires, like Egypt. And many wars were fought in that location. But unlike Canada versus USSR in hockey, it wasn't as simple as the Hebrews against the Canaanites or the Philistines. There was civil war between the tribes of Israel themselves, and they formed alliances with Canaanites and Philistines, and there was Philistines that defected to the Israelite side. So in this messy, chaotic world, David was anointed by God to lead his people to build a united kingdom, the nation of Israel. And this is to fulfill a covenant God has made to Abraham in Genesis 17:6, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. So God sent these men to gather around David, and they started out as a ragtag, motley crude, people in distress, in debt, or discontent. And they were not just Israelites. They were people of different skin colors. For example, Ittai, the Gittite, He's w he was David's most loyal general in 2 Samuel 15, 21. But he was actually a Philistine. 
from GAF. I will to gear up the if fights mentioned here in verse 38. Uriah, you remember that. He's uh, Bathsheba's husband. And Ahimelech, they're Hittites. Hittites are an ancient people from Anatolia, what is modern-day Turkey. And they fought many ancient battles with Egypt. Salak was an Ammonite, mentioned here in verse 37. Ifmar, a Moabite, mentioned in 1 Chronicle 11. And David's group of bodyguards, his royal guards, are actually people called Kerephites from Crete and Telephites, which are related to the Philistines. So this very diverse group of people came together first when David was a fugitive running away from King Saul, and later when he became king, God was at work around David. Okay, let's go into the scripture. Where does the victory come from? We won't have time to cover all the mighty deeds, but we'll just cover a few today. In verse 8, it says, These are the names of David's mighty men. Joshaph, Bethshabeth, Atakamanite was a chief among the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eliezer, Eliezer son of Dodite the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistine gathered at Pashdemon for battle. The men of Israel retreated but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistine till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Elisha, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Herorites. When the Philistine banded together in a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fed from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck, down the uh, struck the Philistine down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. You can see here, it says, Elisha, why other people retreated? He stood his ground and swung his sword. He fought until his hand was tired, but instead of letting go, he had uh, this white knuckle grip on it until he struck down all the Philistine. Literally, they had to pry their sword off his hand at the end of the battle. Similarly, Shammah stood his ground in that field of lentil. When rest of his troops fed, he took his stand and took down the Philistine. So against all odds, these men stood their ground. Where did their courage come from? Was it through the Human effort, the strength. The scripture says, both in verse 10 and 12, it said, the Lord brought about a great victory. They were fulfilling God's purpose. They were being used by God as his instrument, according to his plan. In First Chronicle chapter 11, which is a parallel chapter to 2 Samuel 23, it said, These were the chief of David's men. They, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord has promised. God was fulfilling his promise to his people 
So when things doesn't go well, when things are faced with difficulty, what do we, how do we respond? To be honest, for me, I often get frustrated. I feel that I need to work harder at it to figure this thing out. In Cantonese, we call it gayao, which is add more gas, pedal to the metal. Do it, tough it out. But is that the right way to do? Have I really stopped and listened and asked God, is that His will for me? Ask Him to help me through this? Am I walking in your will, fulfilling your purpose for me, Lord? Here are five stones. Pastor Rich and the prophetic team has spoken prophetic words to many of us over the years to encourage us to seek out God's will for us, to walk in the destiny that he has for us by faith. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 to 13, he was speaking to the Israelite in exile. He said, For I know the plan I have for you, declared the Lord, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart. Yeah, Elijah was good with the sword, but what is our sword? Our sword is the word of God. It says in Hebrew 4.12, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even into dividing the soul and the spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thought and attitude of the heart. It's a pretty powerful sword. Do we know God's word? Are we trained to use it like Elijah? Are we gripping on it tightly, reading and meditating on it, and not letting it go? And that's where the victory will come from. The Lord will bring about a great victory in our lives. Let's look in the next section here, in verses 13 to 17. It's a beautiful story of devotion. It's a during harvest time. Three of the 30 mighty men came down to David at the cave of Adullam. A band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Raphim. At the time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was in Bethlehem. David longed for the water and said, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from that well near the gate of Bethlehem. So three of the mighty men booked through the Philistine lines drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. The underline is mine. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. It is not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives. David would not drink it. Now David's heart must have dropped when he heard that his hometown, Bethlehem, was overran by the Philistines. So in the desert, he longed and reminisced about that refreshing water that he drank from the well probably many times during his youth. So three of his devoted men decided to do 
something really special for David. It's kind of like your wish is our command type of thing. So they traveled 12 miles from Adullam to Bethlehem, fought the Philistine, broke through the line, faced them head on, fought their way to the city gate, drew water from the well, and then bring, brought it back to David in an act of devotion. So what did David do? He refused to drink the water and poured it onto the ground before the Lord. I struggle to understand why did David do that. After all the trouble that his devoted men gone through, risking their life, brought that precious water back to him, and he poured it onto the ground. Really, David? <laughs> if I was one of the three men, I, I would be heartbroken. When I was growing up in Hong Kong, when I was little, we have delicious food. Uh, there's congee, wonton, uh, dim sum, all kinds of street food. But what was really special for me was when my parents, especially I have this hipster, Aunt Isabel, she would take me to this popular restaurant called Ruby, Hongbo Set. This restaurant is well-known in the 50s and the 80s, or up to the 80s, for serving like Western-style food. So unlike Chinese restaurants, which is usually noisy and busy and loud, Ruby Cafe has nice tablecloth, mood lighting, the speaker would be playing you know, soft classical music. I can just remember walking into a restaurant and smelling the steak and the french fries. And when they serve you, they will bring your steak in a cart to your table. And then they would pour this, well, they would light up the alcohol in the black peppercorn sauce, and it poof, right? And then they would pour the sauce onto the steak and serve it to you. So as a little kid, you know, all your sensory excitement is all light up in that meal. I can still smell that ketchup in my mind right now. <laughs> it was an amazing event. How I wish I can enjoy another steak at the Ruby restaurant. Now, hypothetically, if one of my dear friend here would sell his life saving and buy me a ticket to go to Hong Kong and a reservation at Ruby restaurant to enjoy a steak, <laughs> do you think that I would be able to really take up the offer? Do you think I can really enjoy the steak knowing the sacrifice? Knowing that I'm totally undeserving? Listen to what David said. He said, far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. David knew he was undeserving. The price was too high. It could have cost the lives of three of his men. Something so precious and so sacred can only be dedicated to God. So he poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. How easy it is for us so often to just focus on our needs and our longing, our desires. And we would squander something precious, maybe precious like our time, on our own pursuit, on things to fulfill our desires, instead of seeking after God. David realized he was unworthy, he was undeserving, and he dedicated to God. His three friends thought that they were doing 
an act of devotion for David, but instead they receive an object lesson, an object lesson for us all. We won't have time to go through all the names of all the people listed in chapter 23, but I'll just book an, it, it lists about 29 names. Most of the names I won't be able to pronounce correctly anyway. So I'll just mention two names you might recognize. In verse 34, it talks about Iliam, son of Ahithophite, the Gilanite. And in verse 39, it talks about Uriah, the Hittite. If you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you will know that Eliam is the father of Bathsheba. And Uriah, of course, is the husband of Bathsheba. They were both distinguished mighty men, mighty warrior in David's army. And when David, back in chapter 2 Samuel chapter 11, saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof, he asked his men who she was. And his man told him, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? I'm paraphrasing here, but his, his man is telling him, hello, David. This is the daughter of Eliam and the husband of Uriah, one of your best warriors. You know when, when you're driving and you're approaching a railway signal, and the lights start to flash, and the bells go ding, 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 and in the corner of your eyes, you see a long, slow-moving train coming to the crossing, and you're tempted to run that crossing before the train gets here. And this is the message the Holy Spirit is telling David. Ding, 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 ding. Warning number one, Bathsheba is the daughter of Iliam. Ding, 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 ding. Bathsheba is the, is the wife of Uriah. Now God is not going to lower that crossing arm gate on you because he has given us a free will. But at that moment, David was overwhelmed by temptation and he ran that railway crossing and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Later, when Bathsheba became pregnant, David recalled her husband Uriah back from the battlefront. And he wanted to send Uriah home so he can sleep with his wife to cover up the fact that it was David who got her pregnant. But instead, Uriah slept outside the king's palace along with the rest of the servants. And later, he told David that the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are encamped in open fields. How could I go to my house, eat and drink and lie with my wife? Again, my underline. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah refused to go home, eat, drink, be merry, and have intimacy with his wife while his fellow soldiers are in the battlefield. Now this point should have 
spoken loud to David's heart. It should remind David that the Holy Spirit is speaking to him. Ding, ding, ding. The Holy Spirit is reminding David of someone from years ago. And that someone is a younger David. Remember when Bethlehem was overran by the Philistines? Remember when three of your loyal men got the water from the well and brought it to you? Remember when you were so moved by their devotion and their sacrifice? Remember what you said, David? Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Uriah responds of, I will not do such a thing, should have echo really loud to David to demonstrate that David, he, Uriah had a devotion to God and the unity to his men out in the field. Uriah was not even an Israelite, but he was sold out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David should have flashed back to that incident at the well, with the well water, a wake-up call, when his heart was united with his man, and he was devoted to God, and said, Far be it for me, O Lord, to do this. But again, David ignored the Holy Spirit prompting. He sent Uriah to the battlefront to be struck down. So he not only committed adultery, but he also committed murder. He drifted from a young leader with a heart united with his people, to a king who was seeking after his pleasure. Only when he was confronted later by the prophet Nathan, David's heart was convicted. He repented to the Lord and wrote the famous Psalm 51. Against you, you only, I have sinned. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. A steadfast spirit. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take the Holy Spirit away from me. Knowing how he has pushed aside the Holy Spirit and fallen into sin, David pleaded with the Lord to create a clean heart and a steadfast spirit that would not wander. Do not cast me from your presence or take the Holy Spirit from me. So when we are faced with temptation, the Holy Spirit will be calling out on us. Ding, ding, ding. Are we prepared to listen to the Lord's voice? In the heat of the moment, are we prepared to stop and listen and not run the railway crossing? David poured the water out in the well incident in an act of devotion to the Lord. But something much more precious, much more infinitely more sacred, was poured out about 1,000 years later after that incident. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus instituted a new covenant as he picked up the cup of wine after the Passover meal. It says in Luke 22, verse 20, In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is my new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now there's four cups that is served in a traditional Passover meal, the Seder meal. The Jewish celebrate that even up to today. Thousands of years of tradition. 
And that, that's what they do during Jesus' time as well. And the four cups are representing the four I will statement, statements made by God in Exodus 6.6. 6. It says in Exodus 6, it says, Therefore say to the Israelite, telling Moses, I am Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptian. That's the first cup. I will free you from being slave to them. That's the second cup. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and a mighty act of judgment. That's the third cup. And I will take you as my people and I will be your God. That's the fourth cup. The third cup is celebrated after the meal. And this is the cup that Jesus rose and said, this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the cup that says, I, God has promised to redeem you with an outstretched arm and a mighty act of judgment. This is the cup that Jesus bore when he carried the weight of the cross on his shoulders for our sins. This is the cup that Jesus bore when he literally outstretched his arms to be nailed to the cross. This is the cup that fulfilled that mighty act of judgment, a cup that only Jesus can drink. His death on the cross paid a penalty for our sins. An offering poured out onto the ground. His blood was literally pouring out when he was flogged by the Roman soldiers. His blood was pouring out onto the ground when his hands and feet was nailed to the cross. And his blood was literally pouring out when his side was pierced by the Roman spear. So next time, when we take our communion, when our pastor reads, this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Let's remember that promise that God has made to redeem us with an outstretched arm and a mighty act of judgment, an act that Jesus fulfilled when he was on the cross. For us who are so undeserving, but that is the amazing love and amazing grace. What God wants from us is a devoted heart, a contrite heart, and be a drink offering to him. Another mighty act happened later in Acts 2, when a group of Jesus followers, fishermen, tax collectors, people from all walks, different backgrounds, they were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And like a violent wind that came and descended upon each one of them, like tongues of fires, the Holy Spirit descended on each man and women as they began to speak in different languages. A large international crowd of pilgrims, they were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, and they heard and saw what happened. They heard the people, the Jesus followers, speaking the native tongues. And Peter rose up and addressed the crowd, a quote from the prophet Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see vision, and your old men will dream dreams. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, will pour out my spirit on those days, and they will prophesy. I will, want, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter preached the gospel that day, the gospel of the empty tomb. 3,000 people repented and received Jesus Christ, and the church was born on that day. This is the mighty act, the mighty power of the smitten and beaten and broken Lamb of God. This is the mighty act of the power of the blood of Jesus that is poured out for us. This is the mighty power in the name of Jesus. And the power that he has given us to, to his church the paradox of the gospel. In closing, when Paul Henderson stood up from the bench during that last minute of play in game eight, he shouted to his teammate to come off the ice, and he jumped onto the ice and scored the final goal. When asked af afterwards, why, he, why did he do that? You don't call your teammate to the ice. Only the coach can do that, to do the switch. He said, I felt I had to do it. I have never done that before, and I have not do that again in my career. But at that moment, I felt I can do it, meaning he can score. He knew deep down inside him, he could do it. Paul Henderson played his best hockey during that September 1972. He never attained that same level in the rest of his career. But in 1972, that was his moment in history. A few years later, after the Summit Series, Paul Henderson gave his life to Jesus. He went on to attend seminary and started a ministry reaching out to business people and people in the hockey world. He said jokingly that he scored that goal in 1972, and he's still celebrating it 40-plus years later. <laughs> but in actuality, he's using that platform, his moment in history, to open doors for the kingdom work. God used Paul Henderson in, for that moment, or that mighty deed on the ice on September 1972 to accomplish greater mighty deeds. To quote Paul Henderson, he said, no, no question about it, I finally realized that it was God's work, not my work. He used us, and that's the dumbest plan he had in his life, as far as I'm concerned, using a dipstick like me. But he said that we ought to be his ambassador. The good news is that God said, don't compare yourself to anybody else. If I was to compare myself to Billy Graham, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. That's the wonderful freedom we have in Christ. You don't have to be like anybody else. 1 Peter 4.10 Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administrating God's grace in his various forms. So friends, we may come from different backgrounds, different culture, 
but Jesus poured out his life for us. He paid a penalty for our sins on the cross. And when we repent and receive Jesus as a personal Savior, we are free from our old self. We are transformed and we are powered by the Holy Spirit. Then we are called to be in unity with him. We follow hard after our king like the mighty men and to pour out our lives for him and to accomplish the mighty deeds for our, our lives. And that's whether it's in the hockey arena spotlight or whether it's in the back lane. So you feel tired, you feel dejected, a little bit lost, come to Jesus through him, his death and his resurrection. That's where life is found. And that's how God brings those great victories. I'm going to ask Pastor John to close in prayer. Thanks, Eugene. What Eugene brought out was the aspect of these mighty men of David. The the mighty men of David was about devotion. It was about devotion to, to serve a king. That's what gave these mighty men momentum. That's what propelled them. That's what gave them purpose. And in the same way, we serve a king that is so far greater than King David. How are you serving? How are you giving up your, your, your position and your posture to serve your king? A king that poured out everything of himself for you. A king that says, I'm giving out my son so that you can have life. That my son will pour out his blood so that you're able to have life. What we learn from the mighty men of David is a, is a story of devotion. Devotion to a king. And you have an opportunity to serve the greatest king. And to be part of that kingdom. How are you going to respond in all of that? For those that don't know Jesus, this is an opportunity for you to come and get to know what Jesus did on the cross. And if you are questioning that or you have, 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 have um, even wonderings about that, please come talk to us and, and, and come and, and, uh, and, and message us. But I want to challenge the church today. How does the gospel transform the way that you live and how is your devotion to the great king? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for this, this passage, laying out just deeds of people of what they've done for kings. And Lord, we just want our name in a place where we know that we've served you. Lord, as significant or insignificant that these things may be, Lord, may all that we do, all that we are, bring you all the glory. Father God, we know that you are our God. We know that you are our king. So we just lift up all that we are for all that you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.